be honest, I don't even want to preach after that. I just want to keep singing. Reading the Bible should be simple for the Christian. For the man or woman guided by the Holy Spirit, who is sensitive to the voice of the Spirit in their heart, reading the Bible should come naturally. Our desire to hear from God, our ability to hear from God, all depend upon His work. When the church comes together to worship, it is an act that should be the result of a week spent seeking God. In the word, each individual Christian must engage with the very breathed out word of God and we must apply it to the mundane in our life. We must apply it to the various crises in our lives. We must apply it to the secrets of our lives. We must live out the word of God in the dilemmas of day-to-day life. And then, as we grow, as we Push as we seek, as we plead for understanding, for wisdom, for life. We begin to find themes and threads and when pulled, disclose the very fabric of God's wondrous truth before our very eyes. Let me try to rephrase that. For the Christian, we should have a natural desire to be in God's word. For the Christian, it should not be a struggle to understand what the Bible says when we read it. That doesn't mean it's always dirt easy. It shouldn't be a struggle. Because in the struggle, in the misunderstanding, in the confounding, we find echoing back at us the very word of God that says that he has not given us a spirit of confusion. But it should push us to seek God. In fact, even in reading the Bible, as we're about to do this morning, when we come across things that do bewilder us, that do give us moments of pause, as a Christian, our next step should be to go back to God and say, clarify these things for me. Make them make sense. As we then push onward, as we seek God, as we plead for understanding, we experience growth. And as God grants us the petition, the answered petition to our prayers, as he gives us understanding, what we observe is this very fabric, this thread getting pulled, the veil being torn away, and clarity being before us as we see the simple message that the Bible has for us. This morning, I would like to turn our attention again to the theme that we have introduced last week. One word, worship. More specifically, I'd like to zoom in. If we've taken the microscope and set it before us and got it set and we've put the slide in first and we're looking at worship, I want now to crank up the power and I want to zoom in to prayer. The relationship that prayer has in worship. And more specifically than that, what does it mean when we pray with other Christians? Not just on our own, but when we pray with other Christians. Let me begin then briefly with a short survey of how we learn about prayer just by reading our Bible. At the beginning of the Bible, we are exposed very early on to this concept of 
someone praying. Of a relationship with God that's broken by the fallenness of man. And this is the problem that we all live in. We are falling away from God because of sin. And the entire goal, entire purpose of the testimony of the gospel of the church, of the work of the prophets, is to restore that relationship. The hope for Christians set out in the future is the restoration not just of our lives and our relationship with God, but a restoration of a new earth that God has promised us. This is what everything is driving towards. Restoration. Reconciliation. But how is this achieved? Well, you guys know anything about the New Testament, Old Testament? You know there was this weird sacrificial system. The New Testament, and because we're Baptist, we say... There is no priest necessary for me to have this special relationship with God. Rather, it's been perfectly restored. Peter writes in 1 Peter, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. The Old Testament sets out making clear that the nature of any relationship with God is through a mediator. Certainly the Old Testament taught salvation is through a mediator. When we look back and we consider Abraham became this special person that God chose in order to establish a kingdom. Moses was a special person chosen by God in order to be mediator for a nation coming out of Israel. Even before that, Noah was a special person for whom his entire family was blessed. There's this mediator, it's instituted, there's this person between us. God sets out and we find out a couple of things about prayer. Just through a biblical theology, redemption always is established through a mediator. Why? Because we're broken, we're fallen, we're corrupted, we cannot restore ourselves to God on our own. Two, God always uses a mediator to save his people. Yep. Every single time there was a scapegoat in the sacrificial system and there is the Lamb of Christ that restores us to God today. Three, the path of redemption in this world is not for lone, vainglorious explorers, but it is traveled by pilgrims locked arm in arm, joined together both for the sake of giving and receiving aid on the journey. God doesn't just call people to salvation that they can pursue him, but he calls people to salvation with helpers alongside them. This is the reason the church exists. Why does all this matter? I'm supposed to be talking about prayer, right? Because the Bible does not contradict itself. How can we be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, if we're dependent on a mediator, have the terms of God's engagement with man changed? You good Christians nodding your head this morning, I appreciate you so much. Of course the terms have not changed. You know Christ is our mediator. Christ is the one that stands before us. God himself in the flesh. And now watch this. As I pray, we will see the secret of prayer The power of prayer, the issue of prayer, is tied up by none other than Christ's presence. Our text this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Before we get to our text, 
Let's begin with a bit of context by just reading what comes before it. I want to look at verse 25. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Before we get there, though, I need to read back to verse 22. Before I read the Bible, I do not think myself nor you capable of reading it and understanding it without the Spirit. And that is why we stop to pray. For the Spirit's aid as we exposit the Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for this service this morning. God, we thank you for the way that we have worshipped you. God, we thank you for the privilege of coming before you, for hearing voices and the encouragement that we've received. And Lord, as we come to you, if there's anything left in us that still remains, that is not completely dedicated or given over to this moment when your word is read, when your word is proclaimed, God, I pray that you would help us to set it aside. God, that you would be with us as we read your word. Give us understanding. Grant us insight. And Lord, help us to know how to apply this to our lives. Not in a general sense, but God, give us direction as individuals. That you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 7, the author is writing and asserting the claim that Jesus is better than all of the high priests of Israel. No one objects to that. In making that claim, he begins in verse 2. He says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. I love that verse. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. Prayer is an issue of power. Now wait just a minute. What business is this about Jesus being a great high priest and this also having to do with prayer? Stick with me, please. I'm so glad you asked because I'd love to tell you. Let me tell you first why prayer matters. And perhaps you'll see the connection that I'm making in my mind. Prayer is the power of worship unfurled on the church. It is in reading the Bible when we hit roadblocks that we turn to prayer that God would grant us insight. It is in worship when our hearts are hardened that we turn to prayer that we would become softened. It is in giving that we turn to prayer to seek that we are doing what honors God and that we're doing it with the right attitude. Prayer is the power of the church. But listen, power, power is not position or authority. Prayer is not the position or authority of the church in this world. It's not the position or authority of people or individuals who hold offices in the church. Power is not muscle or strength. It's not our ability to intimidate or move. Power is not intellect or wisdom. 
It's not money or means. It's not a voice. It's not being loud. Power alone comes from God. From the very psalm that Jesus proclaimed while he was on the cross, as he was being crucified, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a quote from Psalm 22. The rest of it goes on. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from my words and from my roaring, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent, but thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried until not confounded, but I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men and despised of the men. Gospel must make us realize before anything else. Psalm 22, verse 6. I am a worm. There is no power within me to seek God. There is no strength in me to make his kingdom stronger. There is no ability in me to serve his church faithfully. It all comes from him. Power in the church hinges itself upon prayer. Oh, and prayer is something greater than raising up words and telling an all-knowing God what he ought to do, what he ought to know. Prayer is enlisting into God's will by entering into his throne room. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, all who draw near to him. It is entering into his throne room while we dwell here on earth. Tell me I am wrong this morning. I have known men in my life. I have known great men, powerful men. I have known men of great strength who could not move a mountain. I have known men of great authority that could not move a horse. I have known men of great wisdom who couldn't understand the precepts of the Bible because they within themselves had a hard heart. I've known men of great means who could not satisfy their desires. And I have heard men, great renowned, able to accomplish much and never satisfy themselves without God. But when I have come across men of prayer, and I'm certain that those men have the ability to shake the whole world with the power of God. When I've come across men of prayer, I know with confidence that these men, when they pray, I have felt and I have experienced the throne room coming before me. Their power doesn't come from their words. Their power comes from genuinely worshiping God. I should love to be one of these men, one of those men of prayer, one of those who can go into God's room with confidence, humbly, knowing that I don't belong there, knowing that I'm a worm, but with confidence, with the mediator that stands before me. I should love to be one of those men that understand the secrets of God and his great mysteries. I should love to glorify God in all that I do. The truth is, I like all of you this morning and working out so much baggage in my life, the baggage of my life that I carry with me, that I am stopped 
Oh, I can't say that it's constant. I have too much to work through. You guys don't believe me. Let's do some confession. Sometimes I say things, and you listen to it, and you think that doesn't make any sense. The problem's not you. The problem is me. I want so badly to communicate the gospel clearly, to communicate what the Bible teaches clearly. But I have a whole life that I'm working through. I didn't become this way by mistake. There's a reason why I say things in convoluted ways. I've worked hard to put in my notes hopefully some sense of clarity in the things that I say and the things that I prepare as I get ready to speak to you. But the reality is my brain's broken. What's the sense in doing confession if I can't also make a few excuses? For whatever reason, growing up, whatever it was, I put in my head that what power actually looked like, the idol that I put in my life, was intellect. Wasn't the strongest. I was the oldest of the boys, but my younger brother was stronger than me anyway. Didn't keep me from getting in fights with him. I didn't win most of them, but I always finished them, and I always got the last word. So here was my resolve. I might not be able to stand up to the biggest and the toughest, but you know what? I'll be the smartest. I read the most books, and now I've corrupted my brain. I have a vocabulary. I don't even know what to do with it. It's a baby blanket. I'm up here with a pacifier. Pretending to be smart when I am nothing but a worm. Church, I know far less than you think that I do, far less beyond that than I would surely like to know. And while the latter is greater in proportion to the former, I still know far more than I have any right to know before God. Don't say I didn't give you anything to think about. Our text this morning begins with he is able. And we read that and our mind thinks he is able, he's capable, he has the ability to. Speaking of Christ, he can do something. Listen, that's not what it's saying. You guys remember the sitcom Sanford and Sons? Dynamite! You know where the word dynamite comes from? This word right here, dunamatai. He is able. He has the power, explosive power, the ability to erupt concrete. He is able. He has all of the power. Power doesn't exist in you. It doesn't exist in me. It doesn't exist here. It doesn't exist here. It doesn't exist here. It exists in him. He is able. Why does prayer matter? Because we realize he is able. We may want to read this as Jesus can save us, but it's more than that. It's dynamite. 
The power of prayer exists in his ability. The power unto salvation exists in his ability. The verse goes on. He is able to save. Not just to save, not just a little bit of saving, not just rescuing you. You have a seatbelt on so that you can get scratched up if you still get in an accident. He's able to save to the uttermost. Completely, wholly, perfectly, in all senses of the word, saved. There's no backing up from it. This is all of you, inside and out. This is the baggage that you carry with you. This is the little bit of you, the baby blanket, the pacifier. This is what you couldn't get rid of on your own because he is able to save to the uttermost. Prayer is an issue of power and it's an issue of perfection. Perfection in him. Prayer is an issue. I've got to keep the alliteration going. Particularity. It's particular. That means this power of prayer doesn't exist in everyone. It exists. Look at the Bible. What's it say? To those who draw near to God. He has the power to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. And here's what we do with our baggage. Here's what we do with all the hairpins, the things that would trip us up. We'd say, I'm not able, and so I'm going to quit trying. My prayers don't have power. God already knows what he's doing, so I'm going to quit trying. I struggle to read the Bible, so I'm going to put it down and let somebody read it for me. That's not how prayer works. That's not how reading the Bible works. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. You've got to be a participant. Worship, I said it Sunday night, is not a spectator sport. You have to draw near to God. He's not doing this for everybody. He's saving particulars. We are here to be drawing near to God. We cannot hide behind the fact that God is the one seeking out and calling those unto him. We cannot fall into the complacency of so many who have gone before us. We cannot look around us and check out the world and check out of everything happening because it doesn't belong to us. We must pray on behalf of the world that is powerless against the schemes of Satan. We must pray for them. We must cry out together. We cannot look at the sad state of the church in America and say that it's falling apart, but we must pray cry out to God. God, save us. Hear our prayers. Restore us. Redeem us. We must draw near to God. And how to pray by R.A. Torrey. He writes, in order to, for prayer to be really unto God, there must be a definite and conscious approach to God when we pray. In much of our prayer, There is little thought about God. Our mind is taken up with the thought of what we may need or may be occupied with the thought of what mighty we might want rather than being occupied with the thought of the mighty and loving Father from whom we are seeking these gifts. If we pray aright, the first thing we should do is really get into his presence. What does it look like to draw near to God? 
this isn't some weird, I don't even have the words for it. And even if I came up with them, they probably wouldn't be very clear. What does it mean to draw near to God's presence? It means to slow down. It means to take stock of the baggage that you're bringing in, the things that you're afraid of, the things that you're getting ready to be to God. Take a moment and realize who you're talking to. This is like when you step into your boss's office at work and you're all worked up and you're hyped up and you're ready to tell him what's what. And you go, wait a second, let me, let me use my big boy words. I don't want to get myself in trouble. Let me act like an adult. For that matter, like a Christian. Addressing the almighty God. Who from nothing created the entire universe. Who wants to hear from you. Let that sit for a second and then start to pray. Come to him. Draw near to him. Recognize the parts of you. And this is hard. I'm a worm. In Isaiah's vision, whenever he stood before God, he said, woe to me. For I am a man of unclean lips. John's vision on the island of Patmos, whenever the book of Revelation was being given to him. He was afraid. I am a worm before the presence of the Almighty. Only when we really understand that can we begin to pray with power. Our text says those who draw near to God. Prayer is an issue of power, it's an issue of perfection, it's an issue of particularity, and it's an issue of, got to keep the alliteration going, perpetuity. My goodness, what's that mean? Going on forever, never stopping, perpetual motion. It's always going, it's an issue of perpetuity. Look at what the text says, since he always lives. How is Jesus able to do this with his power? How is he able to save to the uttermost? How is he able to do this for those who draw near to God? He's able to do it because he is always living. If you take notes in your Bible or you're taking notes, what you can do is you can circle the word always and you can circle the word uttermost and just draw a line so that you know that even though those are different words in your Bible, in the original language, they're the same thing. Not only is he perfectly able to save us, but he is perfectly always doing it. He's dynamite, y'all. Jesus, he's, he's telling us what he's doing in heaven. Not only has he saved us perfectly and completely in the immediate moment of justification that we've put our faith in him, but he is securing it. He's keeping us to him. He's always alive, working and 
Don't get this confused to think that this is something that he needs to do to beg on your behalf. This is something he wants to do. He's alive doing this so that he can be your savior, your Lord, your king. His compassionate mercies are all abounding because he understands the struggles of your life. He understands the baggage of brothers that don't understand you. He had at least four of them. He's always alive. Likewise, the instruction given to Christians is to always be in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice when? Always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18. Praying at all times in the spirit and with, prayer, with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Colossians 4.2, continually, steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it without thanksgiving, with all thanksgiving. Prayer is a big deal in the Bible. Why do we neglect it? All right, somebody stand up and say, we don't neglect it, you do. No, we do neglect it. Think about how prayer is treated in just the average worship service, not this church, all the other ones. It's a formality. Bigger church, you have to think about the production and the way things are set on stage. You just insert prayer whenever people need to move. That way the audience doesn't have to sit through that awkward part of people walking up and down. It's, it's just... It's like lowering the curtains, except you ask people to close their eyes and pray. When we meet with people, we kind of put it on the end and on the back, but do we really think about it? Hey, worse yet, when somebody's asked to pray, what do we do? Do we sit there and listen? Check out for a little bit? Make sure we listen to them say amen so that we open our eyes at the right time and not feel awkward? What are you supposed to be doing when somebody's praying? You're supposed to be letting them voice that prayer for you. You're supposed to be saying, yes, God, I agree with that. Yes, that's my prayer too. Yes, I'm saying that with them. Because guess what? At the end, when everyone says amen, amen means that's true. Jesus began many sentences whenever he was teaching. Verily, verily, I say to you. That's amen, amen, I say to you. This is true. We're supposed to be engaged even in prayer as we come before God. As somebody voices that prayer for us, we are participating in it. We're crying out to God together. Why does this matter? Because Jesus is living for us always. We should be praying always, not just when we're together, but we should be recognizing that as a Christian, we live in an in-between state between the kingdom of God, between this throne room that Christ is in and this world. How could you possibly think that you are strong enough, that you contain enough power to live in this world without Him? Prayer is about power. It's about perfection, particularity, per perpetuity, and last but not least, if you haven't caught this yet, this one's really going to surprise you. 
It's about Jesus. Prayer is about Jesus. If you're keeping up with the alliteration, write down the word proponent. Because he is our proponent. He's the one that advocates for us. Verse 25 in Hebrews goes on. He always lives and he's doing something. What's he doing? To make intercession for those who draw near to God. He makes intercession for them. Loved ones, here's the comfort. When you read the Bible and you struggle, here's the comfort. The Bible promises and testifies unto itself that the spirit of truth will come to you and give you all understanding. God's there to help you. When you pray and you don't have words, it's the same thing. Romans 8, 26 through 27. The spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us without groanings, with our groanings, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Let me point one more thing out. That phrase, those who seek God, those who draw near to God, how is it that they do it? Our text says, Through him. Through Christ. Through his through his work, we are able to draw near to God. Through Christ, we are able to restore this relationship. The terms all the way in the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament, have not changed. We had, an, we had a mediator who was not perfect, and now this is what Hebrews is saying. We have Christ, and he's the perfect mediator. He's everything that we need. He's perfect because all those old ones, they kept dying. Man, dying sucks. Jesus doesn't. And guess what he promises? Eternal life. I'm going to be honest. Some of us say that we want eternal life here, that we're not ready to face all of that. That's torture. I really appreciate what Brother John calls DOB disease. That's date of birth disease. You can't make it to the finish line unscathed in a fallen world. The eternal life that Christ offers us is perfect redemption, separation, no longer suffering with all the pains and ailments that come along in a fallen world. Through him, we have so much to be thankful for. Through him, we have the ability to pray. Not through a mediator. Not through a pastor, not through someone who you think's a good prayer, prayerer. I'm trying to turn that into a noun so you know I'm talking about a person, but the ER is making it hard. Prayerer. You have the ability to pray. You have the ability to shower this church, each individual, with love, not your love. Your love's imperfect. It's fallen. You don't even understand how great God's love. You have the ability to pour God's love in the lives of people. You have the ability to comfort those who are grieving. You have the ability to do so much more than you realize. If only you would realize it wasn't you.